This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. For this edition of the Paltrowcast, I spoke with three influential and inspirational entertainers, drummer Carmine Apice, guitarist John Five, and comedian, actor, podcaster, author, and entrepreneur Adam Carolla. First up are highlights from my chat with Carmine Apice. Carmine co-founded the band Vanilla Fudge and would ultimately go on to play with the likes of Ozzy Osbourne, Rod Stewart, Pink Floyd, and Jeff Beck to name a few key artists. His latest release is a reissue of his Guitar Zeus albums, which included members of Queen, Guns N' Roses, Bon Jovi, Journey, and Def Leppard. Apathy is still working steadily, and interviewing him for the Paltrowcast, it becomes very obvious why he is considered one of rock's all-time great drummers. Guitar Zeus is the new reissue. Um, did you originally license the rights and they reverted to you? I originally have been licensing these rights uh, around the world since I did it in the mid-90s. And uh, pretty much uh, the contract, the last contract I had was up in 90, uh, 2017. Yeah, so I got the rights back. And uh, I was, instead of doing a giving another label the rights to the digital stuff and, and everything... I have my own little label, which we, uh, we're releasing the CD as far as uh, physical on my own little label. And then we're releasing uh, all the digital stuff on my own label as well. So, you know, it, it ends up being a, a, with me in the control of it, you know. Sure. Now, how did you first learn about the idea of licensing your own albums instead of looking for labels that would own them outright? <laughs> It might have been the Katazus things, actually, the first ones I did like that, you know. But, um, you know, it's just I had a manager and I had this idea to do this uh, this label, this uh, Katazus album, you know, with uh, a drummer doing a guitar album. And uh, and he said, I can get you a deal. And we did, got the deal out of Japan. And it was a licensing deal where they put up the budget. And uh, I licensed it to them for like three or four years. And they sold it, and then it come, and at the end of the three or four years, the contract comes back to you. You know, so I that was probably the first times I've ever really did it. But we did it, and we made you know we made it work, and we made good money on it, and put together some great records, and had big budgets. I mean, each one of these records, Katazus one and two, cost a hundred thousand dollars to produce. You know, those are the days before the the Pro Tools and all that, even though the second album was done, uh, mixed on something called Radar. So I went from tape to Radar to mix it, you know, and there was really no loss at all in the sound. That was the first time I did a licensing deal, I do believe. Well, you mentioned that that advice came from a manager, and I've read that an old manager of yours got you interested in real estate investing. So it sounds like you've gotten great right. ad- great advice from managers over the years. The managers did a lot for me, you know. I mean, uh, the first manager was with uh, Vanilla Fudge, Cactus, and Beck Boba in the piece. And he was a, a guy from New York that was a, into real estate. He owned a lot of real estate. 
And he kept telling me that real estate is wealth, real estate is wealth, and that's what you should do with your money to invest in it. And, you know, and I've always took that to heart. And I've been investing in housing, you know, ever since. But uh, as of lately, I'm really into it. I mean, I, I might write a book about it. Really? Now, you did have a very successful book on drumming, um, which I believe you were the first famous person to write a book along those lines about drumming. Yes, so, so. I, I was the first one to do that and the first one to do uh, any drum clinics or rock. I was the first rock musician to do a clinic in 1971, and that went along with the book. You know, the book was uh, come to come out, and now the book has sold over 400,000 units, and it's on uh, DVD and ebook, you know, formats. And, uh, you know, so, and the book still sells. It doesn't sell as much because of the internet. They rip me off, and I, we can't keep track of these sites that keep putting the book up for free. You know, I, I, I don't know which, which schmuck uh, stands there and scans 95 pages of my book just to put it on the internet, you know. And uh, I like to get, his, get, get him in a room. With a lug wrench, <laughs> that whoever did that really knocked a lot of uh, royalties off of my sales because I know I went on one website and it was like uh, 1,500 downloads, which 1,500 downloads is probably worth you know three or four thousand dollars to me, you know, in book sales, you know. So that was only one month. The book still sells, but not like it what sells like a third of what it used. But uh, the common thread between everything we've talked about and Guitar Zeus and all that is that you come across as being very entrepreneurial. Were you entrepreneurial as a teenager? You know, where does all that come from? Yes, I was. It's, it's uh, op- opportunistic is what I call it. And I'm, I'm starting to do speaking engagements, you know, like inspirational speaking about that. I've always been like that. I mean, I... I uh, a couple of examples, like when uh, when I was a teenager, about 16 years old, uh, I used to book gigs for my band, you know, like wedding gigs. And one night I booked three gigs in one night. And I booked three different versions of my band. I played in one of them. And I made like uh, over $300 that night back in, you know, we're talking 1963. So $300 was a lot of money. You know, it's more like ten three thousand dollars today you know and i was 16 doing when i did that so i did that all my life all my career in, in the music business uh, another example is when i played with edgar winter the fee he had to pay me wasn't a lot but i wanted to get out and play and so i did i took his fee plus i put together um through my video company we put together master classes in each market we went into which generated more money, and then I sold merch every night after the gig with Edgar. So by the time I was done, I was making almost a couple of grand a day. And if I was doing five days with him, you know, it turned it into ten grand versus two grand. You know, so I'm very opportunistic. I take the opportunities, and I figure out if I can put any more opportunities on the opportunity. You know. Well, would that ever cause friction with management? Because a lot of times managers want to work with artists who they can really control. Well, in my, not anymore, not in my uh, case. You know, I've been in the business too long. I know too much about the business. So the managers I work with, you know, work with me on the project. You know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a difficult person to work with. I'm not like, you know, an egomaniac and, uh, 
you know, I, I ask for their thoughts and, and, you know, if I like their thoughts, I'll, I'll say, oh, that's great. Let's just do it. If I don't like their thoughts, then I would inter- interject uh, what my feelings are, you know. Do you still live in New York these days? I live in New York and L.A. Right now I'm in L.A. I'm getting my house ready to sell because we're going to sell this one and we have another house, me and my girlfriend in Connecticut. We're going to sell that one also and then we're going to go on to Florida. Wow. Why Florida? Because there's no income tax, number one. It's tropical, which I like. My girlfriend likes doesn't like L.A., so... You know, next spot that I like is Florida. So we're going to do Florida, become Florida residents, and split the time between Florida and New York. And we also have a house in the Caribbean that we bought as an investment, which we rent out. You know, and I've been living back and forth in the East and the West Coast since probably 2000. You know, and mostly I stay on the East Coast now, even though I'm a California resident still. You know, I have a car here. I have my my family here. My kids are here. So I'll still be coming back here even when I sell the place, you know. Got it. And I read that you used to live in the town that I uh, currently live in called Long Beach. What brought you out here? Yeah. I lived in Long Beach. Um, I lived in the Azores. It's a, that's what it was called then. It was an apartment uh, complex right on the beach. And then I lived in another thing around the corner, like a block off the beach. Um on, I forgot the road, you know, whatever that road is that goes along the beach, uh, next to the beach. Uh, Shore Road was that, or East Broadway? It might have been Shore, the, the one, not the one directly, you know, the beach, the next one, uh, coming back over towards Island Park. Got it. And uh, what yeah. led you out there? Was it anything to do with your old manager owning the Action House? Yeah, well, that's where we based out of. We had a, a company called Breakout Management. And in breakout management, he had uh, a rehearsal place that we rehearsed at. And uh, we used to store gear there. And you know, we kept our lease truck behind his office. And, you know, and we used to go to the action house and party and uh, hang out with all the gangsters he had. You know, which the gangsters were the guys in uh, Goodfellas. Right. Hey, yo. He used to come to our house and, uh, and say, oh, my God, the stuff, it just fell off a truck. You know, and he opened his trunk and he had... Revox uh, tape recorders and fur coats and little color TVs, all kinds of crazy stuff. So those guys used to hang out with my manager, you know. So it's uh, it was like a, you know, Long Island, New York mafia kind of hangout as well. But it was a, it was the most happening club in Long Island. We used to go there and hang out. It was great. You know, we had a lot of fun. And uh, totally aside from all that, I saw that you're playing an upcoming show with Vinnie Vincent. Is that a long-term project or is that a one-off? Uh, who knows? <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's been, it was scheduled and we're, we're still waiting on getting the songs and everything. But, you know, suppose I talked to the manager promoter yesterday and he said everything's moving ahead. So it's supposed to be putting the uh, advertising up today on the venue which is rocket town in nashville and uh, tony franklin's playing bass and they're just deciding on which singer you know they're talking to two singers and we should know today which one's going to go and then we should have the songs you know we should have the songs ready to go and uh go do the gig see how it goes it all depends on we'll see how it goes you know if it goes great and everything's wonderful then you know maybe we'll do some more shows later in the year you know, but this is like sort of just a comeback gig for Vinny. 
And uh, Vinny used to play with me in a group called Carmine and the Rockers before he joined KISS. I, I've also read yeah. that you're also playing with the Rascals at the moment. Is that still going? Um, well, they're, um, we, we did all these gigs this year, but on, on September, our guitar player, Gene Cornish, was the other, the other 50% of the real Rascal. He had a heart attack on stage, you know, and uh, he's been in recovery. And we did a gig with him December 29th, and he actually played good and everything was fine. So now the agents are going to go to work on booking some gigs for 2019 because they, they stopped booking anything, you know. And uh, there's a couple of gigs that they booked that I, I can't do because I'm playing with Vanilla Fudge because there's nothing booked, you know. And uh, I took a Vanilla Fudge gig, so they're going to have a substitute for me for those two gigs. But uh, supposedly they're going to be booking gigs later in the year, so... Hopefully that'll happen right now. You know, it's just, it just, uh, it's only been two weeks since we played the other gig and, uh, you know, in the holidays and everything. So the agents are just back getting working now. So, so hopefully we'll be hearing some stuff, but I offered uh, Felix Cavalieri is going out with his rascals, which I don't play with because the money isn't uh, good enough to support my fee. But I told him it'd be a good idea if we did Vanilla Fudge and Felix's Rascal. It basically sounds like at this point in your career, you can work as much or as little as you want. You can travel as much as little as you want. Right. I mean, I don't, uh, I had a medical emergency last year in Europe and uh, it took me a, a week to get back home and, uh, and another day uh, I would have been dead, you know? So because of that, I'm not going to Europe anymore and I'm not doing any cruise ships because the condition I had, uh, it was a, a, a hemorrhaging nosebleed thing, you know, and uh, the worst place I could be is on a cruise ship for that because you could bleed out before you can get to a port, you know, and uh, so I'm limiting my traffic, my traveling to uh, to this year, uh, to not Europe. Uh, we are working on also, um, we, we mixed a live Beck Bogart in the Peace 1974 concert that Jeff approved and me and Tim approved and we, we fixed up some vocals and I, I mixed it with Jeff's uh, engineer. So we're hoping that that'll come out this year also. Got it. And uh, more drum clinics are on the horizon, I assume? Well, I'm, I'm talking right now to the School of Rock chain to do a, you know, some clinics and events for them, which includes my history of rock, uh, history of rock speaking engagements. You know, where I talk about you know, rock history from 1966 on up until the present day, you know, or, you know, up until, uh, you know, like the 2000s when everything changed. Because I lived it, you know, Hendrix and Zeppelin and all those people were my friends, you know. You know, so I'm talking to them about doing a run in April of uh, maybe four or five stores in Florida. And then maybe going to meet, I want to meet with the corporate headquarters about possibly putting my uh, technique my realistic rock drum techniques into all the school of rocks for the drum program, you know, because the educational part of everybody's careers is gone down the tubes because, you know, the, the radio doesn't, dic doesn't dictate guitar music anymore. You know, There's all, all the new music is all, all this pop is all, you know, computer oriented stuff. So because there's no guitars and drums and everything selling like they used to be in the stores, the stores are not buying as much because they're not buying as much. The companies don't give the stores the clinics, 
You see what I'm saying? And then there's so much information on the internet now that, you know, people see like they're going to a store, see a set of drums and go buy it on the internet cheaper. So it really screwed up the whole, um, everybody's educational career that was doing clinics and drum books and, you know, guitar books and guitar clinics and all that. They've all come to almost a complete stop. You know, I used to do 30, 40 clinics a year. I think I did one in the last two years, you know? Uh, I think I was at that clinic. That was on Long Island in Seaford. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. There you go. Well, um, in closing, any last words for the kids? Well, uh, get a second job. (laughs) I mean, I always look at it this way. A lot of kids grow up and they say, we want to be rock stars. That's their career. They're picking like a doctor or a lawyer. I want to be a rock star. Okay. Everyone doesn't become a rock star, number one. But every musician growing up that has the passion and the the want to play can make a living in the music business doing different things, you know. So I would suggest that if they decide to be a musician, don't don't make it your business that you have to be a rock star because you don't have to be. You 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 can make make a good living. Playing on cruise ships, you you can, you can. And these days, you can do a good tribute band to somebody and make a big living doing that. You know, you can get concerts on that. You can do cruise ships. You can play weddings. You can play all the society gigs, bar mitzvahs, stuff like that. You know, play play um, uh, clubs, <coughs> and you can make a good living. You know, and if you run your finances right, you know, you set up a four hundred one k. And all that stuff, you know, when you get to my age, you'll have a, a pension plan to pull off, you know. And, uh, you know, if you join the union, you you know, you, you get a musician's union pension after a while. That's uh, pretty much what I've done. I, I had, I've always had my own pension plan. I have my own, uh, I got after pension and uh, musician's union pensions, you know. So you don't have to be a rock star to have that. That's the point. Next up is my chat with guitar hero John Five. Prior to becoming Rob Zombie's guitarist and main collaborator, John Five was a major session and touring musician. His credits include David Lee Roth, Marilyn Manson, Katie Lang, Ricky Martin, Leonard Skinnerd, Avril Lavigne, and the Scorpions. John Five and the Creatures are currently on tour in North America, and the band has a new album coming out later this year called Invasion. As somebody that's been following you for a long time, the story that's out there is that you moved to L.A. when you were 18. Now, what I'm curious about is what prompted you to move out to L.A.? Was the goal to always be a sideman or to be your own solo artist, or what was the plan? Well, I was always coming out to California when I was younger because my grandparents lived out here, and I absolutely despised rain and cold weather. I hated it. My mom would, when I woke up in the mornings in the winter, my mom would put a blanket in the dryer and wrap me in it. That's how, uh, <laughs> that's how good I had it. Um, but I uh, always wanted to be a session musician, and um, that was what was important to me. So as soon as I could, I left Michigan and got out here and started uh, picking and a grinning. Sure. Now the story goes that you actually called up David Lee Roth's management and pitched songs, and ultimately that led to to playing with him. Was the goal 
at all to be a sideman or to be your own guy, or you really just wanted to be a session player? Well, I wanted to be a session player. And then the musician part, like playing with people that kind of all fell into place. Somebody said, Hey, could you, cause I was doing all these sessions and someone said, Hey, can you do these shows? And I said, well, I guess, you know, can you play this live? And I said, sure, I guess. And so that turned into one thing. And then the other thing turned into the other thing. So it just kind of um, snowballed that way. Now, at what point did it seem like this was a viable career as opposed to just hustling and going from gig to gig? I think when I got my first <clears throat> professional gig with Katie Lang, I mean, it was a private plane and a masseuse and all these things. And I was like, Whoa, this is really turned into something. <laughs> and, uh, I remember looking out into the crowd and Prince was there and Peter Gabriel and Madonna. And I was like, Whoa, this is like really turned into something. So that's when I was like, well, I think I'm going to, I like this touring business. I think I'm going to continue on with it. Now looking, you know, at just a five-year window where you would manage in, you know, in five years to play with Katie Lang, Marilyn Manson, David Lee Roth, and a Halford project. Obviously that's major versatility. Growing up, what sort of musical training did you have? Well, I took lessons my whole life. Uh, ever since when I was seven years old, I was just taking lessons, just lessons and lessons and lessons. So I was always learning because I knew to be a session musician, you had to know every kind of style. You had to have knowledge. You had to have everything and you had to play it effortlessly. So um, I just practiced and played all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. And that's basically what I did. I was just so obsessed with it. Well, did you start off with piano lessons or was guitar your first instrument? Uh, guitar was definitely the first thing that I picked up and I wouldn't play anything else. That was it. That was it for me, for sure. You know, becoming a master of guitar, did that lead you to wanting to master other instruments as well? Not at all. I, I was so focused on the guitar. I just fell in love with it. I just was obsessed, completely obsessed with the guitar. And I just wanted to try to get close as possible to mastering the instrument with all these different styles. And uh, still, I'm reaching for that today. Now, you notably played bass for, for David as well. Was bass ever, you know, a specialty instrument for you? You know, I love bass guitar. I love great bass players. I love walking. I love, you know, bass was, nobody really played bass at the, you know, they would play bass probably like near the 12th fret and things like that. That's where a lot of those great bass players would play bass. And sometimes you'd hit a really low note, but you know, it was such a great instrument and I loved using it as kind of a lead instrument, kind of like how Paul McCartney would do. And, uh, you know, things like that. He was, you know, even Gene Simmons, you know, or, or any of those like rockers that would, play this like 60 70 style bass line i loved it and that's what i studied a lot now in terms of your solo career uh also it plays into the idea that you're very versatile and that you'll be chicken picking on one song another thing will be actually almost borderline thrash does that resemble your taste for what you listen to when you're not playing 
Oh, yeah. I love country music. I love Slayer. I love Slipknot. I love, you know, Buck Owens. I love Roy Clark. I love, I love music. And um, that's very important. I just am such a fan of music in general. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, uh, Slipknot or if it's uh, Buck Owens. So moving forward to one of your live shows, besides it just being your solo catalog, what should somebody expect from, from seeing one of your live shows if they haven't seen you before? Well, it's, it's an amalgamation of different styles of music. It's pretty much who I am. It doesn't get boring, that's for sure. There's um, always something happening. It's kind of like um, Alice Cooper instrumental show. There's monsters that come out. There's all these different styles of music. There's, we do this um, crazy medley of like, you know, 40 rock riffs and 10 minutes. And it's just such a fun time. And it's kind of planned out so people don't get bored, if you will. <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain, but because instrumental shows can be a little boring if you know if you don't give them a little variety is it that you're averse to singing or you're not a singer i'm curious where just the idea to be consciously an instrumental person came from yeah i am not a singer i played with the greatest singers in the world and definitely not a singer <laughs> i would not open my mouth around um steve perry or you know david Lee roth or anybody like that you know i'm good for a couple of hey yeahs and a Whoop, whoop. That's about it. Well, when you cut demos for Roth, did you actually put vocals on them or you gave them purely instrumental tracks? No, we were together. We would cut everything together and I would just give him, you know, the instrumental stuff and we would cut everything live. The guitar based, I mean, guitar and drums and he would be singing and we did it like Van Halen and, uh, we, we did it live, so that's why that one album we did sounds so live, because it is. Wow. <laughs> Slam dunk. That, that must not have been an easy one to do. No, and that was done at like 6 in the morning, so it was totally, totally, totally insane. Got it. Now, another thing that's super interesting about you is your Knights and Satan Service Instagram account. Is really <laughs> all of that your memorabilia? Yes, all of it is mine, and uh, I do it every day, every morning, and uh, there's a lot more to come. So is it that you'll buy a collection of things, or do you buy things one at a time? I, I'll just buy things here and there, periodically. But you already had most of that, and it's just uploading one thing at a time of things you already have for the most part? Exactly, exactly. So I just do it, you know, every day, and... Uh, I really have a great time with it, that's for sure. Now, I've heard you talk in interviews about having direct interactions with the members of KISS, but what have they said or, or what feedback has there been about this account from, from KISS itself? They love it. You know, they've used it for, they're going to be using it for, you know, books in the future, and uh, they're very supportive of it, of course, because uh, it's history, you know, it really is. That's what it is. It's history. Tying that all together with things we've talked about already, it seems like you've worked with and gotten to know all of your heroes. Would you agree with that? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, I've never worked with a Beatle or uh, a Mick Jagger or anything like that. But, you know, I'm so very 
beyond blown away of what has happened in my life. And I would have never have dreamt it in a million years. So doing what you're doing now, you know, you work with Rob, you do the occasional yeah. session, it looks like you've got your solo career. Is there anything else brewing or anything else I didn't touch on? Well, you know, to be honest with you, I am so happy with what is going on in my life. Like, again, I would have never have dreamt this in a thousand years of what I have done. So it's, it's, a, it's a dream. It's actually a dream come true. And if I woke up and I was in bed and I was just like, whoa, I had this crazy dream. I wouldn't be surprised. I appreciate that honesty. And it's amazing that you're also able to do all that while being a family man. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty insane. And when you hear the ruckus in the background, I am going through my guitar storage and, uh, I play so much guitar. <laughs> I, uh, I do my interviews when I have to do knickknack things like this. So bear with me. So ultimately, is there something that you wish more people knew about John five at this point in time? Because I asked that people say that guy's a guitar God, that guy's always working. But do you think that there's a side of you that people don't know? For example, on the show trunk fest, it showed that you're a hell of a cornhole player. Ah, I love that cornhole. You know, that's a, that's a great question. Cause it's, it's really interesting because I love, for some reason, the I can play guitar and everybody kind of knows everything. You know, I never hide anything. I don't need to hide anything. I, I'm honest with people, but the one thing maybe people don't know about me, I can play guitar, but the other thing I can do well in my life is I can throw a ball and I can hit a ball, hit a baseball and throw a baseball. I don't know why, but I can hit, you know, a 90, 90 mile an hour ball. No problem. It's very strange. Well, were you a big sports fan growing up? I was not. <laughs> I mean, I was on a baseball team and I was really, really good, but I was such a guitar freak that I didn't think about it or give it a second thought. For some reason, I can throw a ball and I can hit a ball no, no problem whatsoever. And has the opportunity to play the national anthem at a sporting event ever come up? It has. It has quite a bit. Um, but I never really have taken that. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm busy or out of town or doing something. Got it. Got it. So ultimately, John, any last words for the kids? Words for the kids. I would say play what you love and everything will fall into place. And that's the best advice I can give. And you're a perfect example of that one, it seems. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Finally, our highlights from my chat with Adam Carolla, who has found success as a comedian, actor, podcaster, radio personality, television host, producer, entrepreneur, and author. While doing press for Castrol, Adam spoke with me about a variety of topics. I don't know if I've ever encountered anyone as skilled of an improviser as Adam Carolla. So is this the first time that you've worked with Castrol before? Uh, Castrol is a sponsor on my podcast and uh, have been a sponsor for a while, but this is the first time I've actually went out and uh, tried to break a car that they bought. Well, how did this opportunity to break the car that they bought come about? 
Well, I think Castro was looking for somebody who sort of walked the walk and, and talked the talk when it came to cars. So they did their due diligence and they found out that uh, I have a lot of race cars. I have a lot of small displacement cars. I have a lot of turbocharged cars. I use the Castrol edge in them because the engines are tweaked and spooled up because of the small displacement and the big horsepower. And they were like, well, this guy races vintage cars. This guy wrenches on cars. So why not just get him? And I don't think they could afford Kimmel. <laughs> Let's be honest. Now, you did just mention that you have a lot of race cars. You're known for that and having them on display and all that. When you started buying cars, was it ever for investment purposes or is it purely because you wanted to have them? Uh, I, I bought cars for, I have bought cars for investment purposes in the past. Uh, I always would buy cars that I liked. Uh, it wasn't like, well, I'm going to buy that car. I hate that car, but I think I can make some money on that car, and then I'm going to flip that car. I've never done that. I've, I've bought cars of, of like, but I've also had an eye toward, well, would they go up in value? And when I bought my first Paul Newman race car, it was his GT1 championship car from uh, 1985. He won that at, at Road Atlanta in the runoffs in 85. And I did say, is Paul Newman alive? I, he was alive. I was like, how old is Paul Newman? And he's like, he's 83. And I was like, well, this is his race car. He won a championship in. Like, it's going to be worth something one day. And it wasn't free. It was like $100,000 or maybe more, maybe a little bit more. But um, it's gone up in value. We've rebuilt everything. I raced it last year at the Rolex Historics. But yeah, there's an element of, is it a cool car? Do you want this car? Do you want to drive this car? And it's also an element of, uh, you know, could you sell it later on when you have to pay for your kid's rehab? <laughs> well, speaking of Paul Newman, I remember seeing in an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee that Paul Newman had rebuilt several station wagons with race car engines. Do you have anything like that? Paul Newman dropped uh, V8s into, I think, three Volvo wagons. He owned one himself. He gave one to Letterman, and then there's a third one floating around. I don't have any Paul Newman street cars. I tried to buy that uh, wagon off of Wayne Carini, but his partner didn't want to sell it or, or vice versa. Either way, uh, long story, no. The Volvo wagon had a little four-banger engine in it, which uh, you should have put some casserole edge in because it was working hard. Now it got a big 5.0 supercharged Mustang engine, and you know you could put conventional oil in that. Right. Now, on the other end of sports, you were known to be a standout football player. How do you think this year's Super Bowl was? Uh, I, uh, I watched my Rams uh, get vanquished by a team that never gets tired of winning. So uh, personally, I was uh, depressed, but spiritually, I felt good because I had a Super Bowl party in my car museum, and I was amongst all my race cars and all the Paul Newman race cars. So I, I, I went and sat in my Porsche 935 that Paul Newman won his class in at Le Mans in 1979, and I wept openly. <laughs>
Well, uh, this week you had Diamond Dallas Page on your podcast, and earlier you mentioned being somebody that walks the walk, talks the talk. Somebody like him does the same. Uh, how do you handle the energy of DDP so well? Uh, yeah, that guy, he just, he brings it. And I, you know, although I got to tell you, his voice is getting a little bit rough. Uh, I think it's because he's so beaked up. So uh, I actually gave him a shot of casserole edge and it smoothed his, it smoothed him out. Now he sounds like Tony Bennett. Uh, but I, uh, I, you know, I do a podcast every day. I'm lucky enough to talk to like great celebrities and great directors and great war heroes and producers and race car drivers. And it, it's, it's a blessing and a mitzvah. And I get to do it all in my studio, which is right next to the warehouse with all the race cars. Well, my favorite of the podcasts that you do are the Take a Knees. Is there anybody that you're still hoping to get on that show that you haven't already gotten? Uh, you know, the Take a Knee is my motivational podcast, and we do a one-on-one -on -one thing. And uh, I think coming up, we're going to get uh, director Michael Mann to come on, and I'm a big fan of his, and so I, I look forward to that. So um, that's coming up, and that's one that I'm really excited about. So looking at everything that you've accomplished on TV, film, et cetera, is there anything that you haven't yet taken on that you're still hoping to do? Um, I'm continuing uh, making documentaries and excited to tour and do stand-up and write books and do podcasts. Um, I would like to do Lama. I think my bucket list race is get to be part of a team that went to Lama, which is uh, the biggest race in the world, and maybe get on a Porsche or Corvette team or something like that, dump a little casserole edge in the crankcase and uh, take off for 24 hours. Uh, of course, you have to stop and get coffee, but other than that, it's a 24-hour race. Well, any chance of a Road Hard 2 or a similar kind of project to that? Uh, yeah, Road Hard is an independent uh, rom-com I did. I do a independent comedy every 10 years or so. <laughs> but they're hard to make. You don't make any money. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a tough slog in terms of uh, that. But I do have a lot of documentaries coming out. And uh, you can go to Chassis. C-H-A-S-S-Y.com, or you can go to AdamCarolla.com and you can find out any of, the, any of the documentaries, any of the car documentaries, any of the, any of the movies I make, or you can go to Cashville USA YouTube page and watch me drive an Audi R8. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the energy just comes from Cashville. The energy comes from Cashville. I'm actually wearing a Cashville Edge patch right over my Nicorette patch I actually have, to, <laughs> trying to quit smoking and conventional motor oil. Sure. So finally, Adam, any last words for the kids? Uh, as far as the kids, go out there, push it to the edge, lead an exhilarating life, and uh, fear nothing except for Kodiak bears, and uh, put that casserole edge in your crankcase. <laughs> Thanks a ton. Keep up the great work, Adam. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Mm -hmm.